can be no keener revelation of a society's soul than the way in which it treats its children. This is the first podcast of CPLL, the Catholic Parliamentary Liaison Office based in Cape Town, South Africa. Since 1997, the CPLO has provided an open forum for concentrated debates on a broad range of public policy issues. These debates have exerted an influence for the common good in areas of political, economic and social concern. We make submissions on legislation, we publish briefing papers and we host regular roundtable discussions where we try to bring together members of civil society, the broader faith community, government officials and political decision makers. News of our events and our podcasts can be accessed by our website at cplo.org.za. Please sign up for our newsletter. In light of the groundbreaking 2019 Constitutional Court of South Africa ruling that the common law defense of reasonable and moderate parental chastisement was indefensible, we decided to convene a panel on violence against children, which took place on 28th November 2019. The speakers were... Shanaz Matthews, who directs the Children's Institute at the University of Cape Town, Carol Bauer, a child rights consultant, Divya Naidu from Save the Children South Africa, and Isabel Magaya, who works at the Centre for Child Law. The event was moderated by Guru Kaba, Program Director at Save the Children. Biographies of the speakers appear on our website. Thanks for listening. Please remember to subscribe at cplo.org.za. The event was introduced by Steve Miller, CEO of Save the Children South Africa. My name is Gukukaba. I'm currently the program director in Save the Children South Africa. We have today the Catholic Parliament Liaison Office that is bringing us together to have a conversation about violence against children because this is a conversation that South Africa needs. Steve Miller. Uh, my name is Steve. I'm, I'm the new CEO at Save the Children South Africa, so thank you for coming. 2019 uh, is an auspicious year. Uh, of course, we celebrate 30 years of the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, and there's a lot of events around us throughout the country uh, that I'm sure you've been part of, and so it's pertinent that we're holding this today too. It's also the 100th anniversary of Save the Children, and I, I'm not going to talk much about our organization because that's not the topic today. But just to take us back 100 years ago to what actually happened uh, when this organization was formed in the aftermath of World War I and how our founders reached across the lines of, of a terrible, ferocious war to help children. And this was very controversial at the time. But when they put together this fund, they garnered the support they needed to do their work. That momentum, those people in society who put aside all their differences to focus on children are always there. And this organization grew, the Universal Declaration on the Rights of the Child, and eventually, in 1989, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. And here we are today. And so for us, when we look at South Africa and the violence that we see in our society today, we are concerned, we are disturbed, we're outraged by what we see, as I'm sure all of you are, and something needs to be done. We connect this issue of corporal punishment very solidly to the violence that we see in our society today. And the reason we've brought everybody together is so we can hear 
from the experts, the people who understand this subject from different perspectives, be it from the legal perspective, from the perspective of a social worker, people who can bring us the full story so that we as individuals, no matter what we're doing, whether we're working in parliament, whether we're working on the streets, whether we're working as activists, we have more knowledge to take this issue forward. So that's what today is about, and I'll allow Gugu to, to introduce our guests. I think just from a, a, a quick sort of housekeeping side of things, uh, there is a podcast that's been uh, uh, recorded today, so Gugu is going to be uh, very strong on the timing. She's going to, to keep, us, keep us moving. But we do have that section towards the end uh, for, for everybody to engage. So please, for me, that is obviously the most important part of today. Uh, let, let's get as much uh, of your energy out there as possible. Engage with our, with our panel and, and let's have a good discussion around this. And let this just be a starting point. We want to hold more of these discussions going forward next year as well. And of course, on individual basis with all of you. So let this just be a starting point for this. Thank you. Thank you very much, Steve, for that um, great welcome and introduction. And at this point, I'd like to introduce Professor Shanaz Matthews, the director of Children's Institute in UCT. Over to you, Prof. So what I'm going to talk about today is really thinking about what are the intergenerational implications of violence against children but also wanting within that to start thinking about how do we, what's the link between violence against women and violence against children? Because often we keep these two quite siloed and we don't connect the two problems and it's so interrelated in my understanding. So, firstly, I want to introduce to you what I understand as a life course understanding of violence and I think it's really critical for us to start thinking about violence that it doesn't occur once off and that it often co-occurs in multiple settings and it often occurs early and you see the kind of trajectory. So if you're thinking about violence, my work shows that infanticide is a huge problem in South Africa. That's the killing of a baby soon after they're born. And we don't have time to get into that, but I think it's really important that we start conceptualizing violence really differently. We all know about child maltreatment. That's an area most of us work in, and that's what we see as the most common problem affecting children. And I think it's really important that we understand child maltreatment as intersecting forms of violence, that it's not just physical, it's not just sexual, and it's not just psychological, but they actually intersect and overlap. And I think that's really critical for us to start understanding that we can't separate them out neatly. Sexual violence occurs across the lifespan, from birth into adulthood and beyond. I want to include intimate partner violence because I think it's really critical that we start understanding that violence against children also includes dating violence. And for young women, it occurs very early on. And often from the age of about when they start dating, 13, 14, even younger than that, and I think that's really critical for us to start thinking about the conceptualization that you can't tease out these forms of violence very neatly. Youth violence, often we don't talk about it, but it is violence against children. And it's a huge problem in South Africa. And it's also a driver of multiple other forms of violence. And if we don't acknowledge it and bring it into our spaces, we're not going to 
if our aim is to end violence, to actually get to that. I was not going to talk about the size of the problem in South Africa, and then Divya said to me, actually do speak about it. So I think it's really important, and as we're sitting in the room, we certainly acknowledge that violence is a big problem, but do we know how big the problem is? So the first national estimates that we have on violence against children is from the, the Optimus study that tells us that about one in three children in South Africa have experienced sexual violence or physical abuse. It translates to about 350,000 new cases per year. That's enormous. If we think about it, we've got just under 20,000 social workers working in South Africa, and not all of them are working on child abuse. Do we have the capacity to effectively deal with this number of cases? It, but what's interesting is that community-based focus studies are giving us higher estimates. So if we're looking at work done in the Eastern Cape, your physical abuse rates are higher. Similarly, emotional abuse and neglect higher than what's reported in the, uh, in the national estimates. And I think it's really critical that we start thinking about these problems as not, you know, as much higher than what we're co conceptualizing because there is such a huge problem of underreporting. In fact, some studies for sexual violence are saying only one in nine cases gets reported. So what we're dealing with is far bigger than what we, we're currently assuming. So if we're looking at Oh, I've got a very outdated stats from SAPS here. Devia, I've got the wrong slide, but anyway. But what we do know is that just under half of all reported cases to SAPS are those of children. And for the last reporting year, it was about 25,000 children. 25,000 children that reported sex, uh, a sexual uh, offence. So that has huge implications if I'm saying only one in nine cases gets reported. A study that I've been part of, I've been part of a of the birth to 20 cohort study, which is a birth cohort where children was born in Soweto in 1990, and they're called Mandela's children. And they were recruited into a birth cohort study, which means you follow up those children over their lifespan. And we followed them up for nearly 30 years. And, and what we have done is we've kind of looked at all the data points and looked at the experience of violence of children, the children have had over their life course. What that piece of work had shown us, and we, we kind of clumped it, so never experience, one experience, and so we've clumped the, these experiences together. The important thing that what this birth to 20 study, and we've got about nearly 4,000 children that we've been following up over this period of time, but what this analysis is showing us is that 99% of children in that cohort have either experienced or have witnessed violence, been exposed to violence. Now, you're going to say, but this is Soweto and this is 1990. But I would say that this is very similar in most other communities like Soweto in South Africa, where exposure and experience is incredibly high. And the reason I'm talking about exposure as well because we often speak about experience, but exposure of violence has very similar effects to a child. And, and it's really, really critical that we start understanding what the impact of exposure is. So if we start looking at the kind of, we see a bell-shaped curve when, when we start thinking about 
the highest experiences of violence occur in the kind of adolescent years. But it doesn't mean that children early on don't experience violence and later on don't experience violence either. The area that I have delved into probably for the past 10 years is the children that have died as a result of violence, so looking at child murders in South Africa. And what this work has shown us is that, in fact, we have more than a 1,000 children murdered in South Africa. What my work has delved into is what proportion of children who are murdered are murdered in the context of fatal child abuse. And you can say, but aren't all of these child abuse cases? And I wanted to show you this graph. Not going to go into much detail, but just to tell you, Firstly, South Africa has a child homicide rate or murder rate of 5.5 per 100,000. Why that is important is because if you look at population rates, that's the way you can compare across countries. Globally, the child homicide rate is 2.4 per 100,000. So if you compare our rate to the global rate, we more than double the global rate. Not doing well. So if you're looking at child murders and the pattern of child murders, you see your under five-year-olds are most likely to be killed in the home in the context of fatal child abuse. What this is telling us is that children who are murdered just don't have the ability to protect themselves. They're young children in the context of the home and it's often no one knows what's happening to that child because they're not, they're in the home. They don't have contact with others or where people know something's not okay, they're not talking about it, they're not reporting it. So how do we end the silence about what's happening in the home? You'll see, it's, so it's U-shaped. So from the age of about 12, 13, you start seeing an increase. And what you're looking at there is an increase of male-on-male -male interpersonal violence. And you're starting to see youth, and particularly young men, take on behaviours of older men. And that drives our problem of male homicide in South Africa. So when you start thinking about why is our society so violent, you've got to look at this pattern in terms of when children start experiencing violence and seeing that actually it starts very early. So it's really important that we understand that violence doesn't only result in the physical scars that you see. So it's not just the kind of broken bones or the scars, but it actually has long-term, long-lasting effects. I think it's really critical that we start unpacking what does it do when a really young child, and I'm going to talk about this, I've got 10 minutes left, in a, when a very young child experiences violence, it impacts on their cognitive and psychosocial development that affects lifelong how they're going to interact, not just with, within the family, but with their own peers, and then later on, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit, how that impacts on their own interpersonal relationships later on in life. We know it influences poor school outcomes, delinquent behaviour, risky sexual behaviour, increased risk for substance abuse, mental health problems, as well as increased aggression. Now, I'm not going to go into this in detail, but I think it's really important for us to start thinking about what science is showing us is that epigenetics is really, really critical for shaping children's trajectory. I think it's really important for, for us to understand that it's not just genetic makeup that you're born, but that genetic makeup is influenced by your own environmental factors as well. And I'm going to talk about what that means. So although 
the experiences in those early years, particularly in the first thousand days, can rearrange your epigenetic markers that the child and gene expressions within that child. It's very complicated, but I think we need to, as a sector, understand this more clearly because I think it's critical for us to understand that those early years shape who that child becomes. And we actually, if there are family violence and if children are experiencing violence in those early years, it sets them up for failure long term. And that's the important part of talking about this. So when you talk about violence in those early years, children, what scientists are calling toxic stress now, and it's really about that prolonged exposure to adversity. So it's the, it doesn't just have to be physical violence, but it's the neglect, it's the maltreatment the children experience early on that then result in biological responses. It affects the architecture of that child's brain. And that's why I said, you know, it sets them up for failure long term. And if we can hold that child and give them a nurturing, caring environment early on, you're actually setting them up in a way that allows them to be caring themselves later on. So we do see it impairs school readiness, academic achievement, both physical and mental health. So it's not just mental health. So work in the US that have followed and, and look what they called ACEs. So, so the ACEs studies in the US have shown the relationship between violence exposure during childhood and later physical health. So it's not just mental health that we always assume it's just mental health, but it's also physical health. Poverty, violent neighborhoods all affect outcomes for children as well. So it is really critical that we start thinking about how we support children. If we're looking at levels of poverty in South Africa, how do we support children across their life course and not just, and I think although we've got early, uh, ECD is on government's agenda, it shouldn't be stopping within those first few years. It should be, how do we scaffold across the life course of the child? So I think it's really critical that in my work, and, and this is probably about 10, 12 years ago, I did work with men, very violent men in prison who killed their intimate partners. So my interest is both violence against women and violence against children. And it became increasingly clear that the experiences of these very, very violent men who've all been in prison for killing their partners, early experiences certainly had shaped who they became. And that's really critical. So what we do know is that victims become, so, so children who are victims of violence often get trapped in cycles of violence and there's repeated victimization. And what we do see also outcomes differ for gen, based on gender. So girls are at increase who, who are exposed to violence early on are at increased risk for internalizing, which means that they set up more to have mental health problems. So like increased risk for depression, increased risk for anxiety. Boys, on the other hand, you see externalizing behavior. So it's your kind of violent behavior that shapes masculinity in South Africa. And what we do know it also in both genders reduce the ability for em emotional attachment later on. And that's really critical in the work we do. I'm going to go through this quite 
quickly because I've got five minutes left and I'm not going to go through all these kind of, but what I want to say is that the intergenerational cycling of violence is really, really critical and I will make the slides available so, so, so you can have the slides. But I think the most important, what I want to stress here is that there is an, inter what my work is showing is a clear intergenerational cycling of violence often when mothers, particularly mothers, where they single mothers have been exposed to violence, children are at increased risk themselves. And that is becoming clearer. And our services are not taking that into account when they're seeing um, children. I've spoken about the differential impact of violence on girls and boys. And I think the important thing here is in my work with men, men talk about feeling when they're exposed to domestic violence in the home, that they're just not able to protect their mothers. And I think that's really critical that, you know, children, and particularly male children, feel that they have that role as protector and not able to do that. So when we're pulling together kind of childhood adversities, thinking about these men who've come to kill an intimate partner, they all talk about rough and, rough and hard childhoods with really limited positive attention from their own mothers. And that's really important that we've got to understand that violence isn't just at the hands of males. So often women themselves are quite violent towards their own children and we, we need to start understanding that. Absent fathers came out really, really clearly that often these the fathers, when they were, were around, were emotionally not involved, and when they were, weren't around, often these young men would fantasize who, who their fathers were. And it is about searching for identity. And without having that in the home, it becomes so easy to get involved in um, gang activities in communities. So seeking that affirmation outside the family often leads to criminal activities, and therefore pathways to take on violent masculinities, although it's very complex, it has complex emotional and social factors that we've got to take into account, it's really important in terms of stemming the tide of violent behavior. Now, I think what I just want to highlight here is that this is looking at structural pathways for from child abuse to male perpetration, Work has been done in South Africa, and what comes out here is that mental health exposure, so mental health problems are incredibly high in this group of men who become perpetrators. Binge drinking, as well as PTSD. And therefore, it's really important to prevent these kind of, um, you know, long-term mental health problems if we're wanting to curb some of the violence we are seeing. I'm gonna, this is complicated, but just wanting to say that with women as well who have experienced child abuse, there's an increased risk for them to experience intimate partner violence. And what this is just showing you is some of the pathways. And we don't have time, I've got one minute left. So I'm wanting to talk about the intersecting forms of violence, and I'm probably going to stop here. But it's really important for us to understand that violence against women and violence against children co-occur in the same household. They share the same risk factors and they're driven by the same social norms. And therefore it becomes imperative that we start thinking about how we address these problems sim simultaneously. I think it's really critical that when you're working with, with a child, 
You don't forget that the child's part of a family and that there is a system that you're working with. And similarly, when you're addressing violence against women, you should be considering what's happening to the child. And I think once we're starting to think about how we introduce interventions that address both simultaneously, we might be moving forward. But I do, clearly we know that this is a complex area that's not easy to resolve, but it is, I think, critical that we start thinking about how we work to collaboratively instead of in silos. And I think that's where I'll stop. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Shanaz. And with that, I'd like to introduce you to a child's rights consultant, Carol Bauer. All right, so I was asked to talk about um, corporal punishment specifically. And in the light of the, the uh, decision by the Constitutional Court on the 18th of September, that, it, that you can no longer, as a parent, use the defense of reasonable chastisement when accused of assaulting your child. And the fallout from that has been very interesting, and I want to talk a little bit about some of that. But one of the things that people say who disagree with this, this uh, finding is that the state has no right to interfere in the private sphere, and we are turning into a nanny state. And so that's why I've called my presentation Nanny State or Constitutional Responsibility. What I'm going to talk about is what the Concord actually did say, because there's some confusion about that. It is not the case that they prohibited corporal punishment. They did something else which effectively prohibits corporal punishment, and I'll talk a little bit about that. What does this mean for parents? There's a lot of fear that parents are going to be criminalized for every little smack and that the children of the country are going to be beating a path to the door of the nearest police station to lay charges against their parents for, for the merest slaps. Look a little bit about corporal punishment specifically in South Africa, common issues that are raised when the issue of prohibition is, is brought up, the difference between punishment and discipline, because there is a very huge difference between them. And when I tell people I don't think they should hit their children, they say, well, how else do we discipline them? Well, the fact is that discipline and punishment are two different things. Oh, sorry, not yet. Um, then there are a series, as Shanaz pointed out, of negative outcomes of childhood experience of violence, including corporal punishment, even the so-called loving little smacks. The, one of those most serious financial consequences is, is the financial, uh, one of the most serious consequences of, of violence in childhood is the economic and fiscal um, outcomes that fall from that, what the constitutional obligations of the state are and what happens next. So what the Concord actually said was that there was something in our common law, which we inherited from Roman Dutch law, from the colonizers, that said if you hit your child, our law prohibits you hitting anybody, but this defense allowed you to say, well, I hit this person because they are my child and I'm disciplining them. And the, the, the whole issue arose out of a case in Johannesburg or somewhere in Gauteng, I think it was Johannesburg, where a father beat, punished his 13-year-old son for looking at pornography on his iPad. Now, whether or not the child was looking at pornography, that is actually questionable. It seemed he wasn't. What the father did was not acceptable. The mother laid charges. The, the father was found guilty and sentenced to five years, suspended for five years, and his firearms license was revoked, and I think that's what really got him because he appealed that decision, that court finding, on the grounds of this defense. 
Long story short, it, went, it ended up going through a, a, a legal process to end up in the Con Court to find that, in fact, the, the defense of reasonable chastisement is unconstitutional. And specifically in terms of sections 10 and 12.1c and 28.2 of the Constitution, which deal with the right to dignity, to not living in fear of violence, and, and, um, and also, although it didn't come out particularly in the ruling, you must remember that our co Constitution forbids discrimination on any grounds, including age. And just because you're little doesn't mean you're excluded, any age. What was very important, there's some things about the judgment that those of us who were involved are not delirious about, but we got what we wanted, and I've worked for this for nearly 20 years, so I just wanted to celebrate. But, but they, what was very important about it was that they specifically defined corporal punishment as a form of violence against children. Because there's this notion that there's a difference between smacks and abuse. And that is not actually the case. Because if I didn't like what the lady over there looking at her phone was wearing, and I, that she was looking at her phone, and I walked over and clapped her, she could go straight to the nearest police station and report me. I don't have to hurt her. I don't have to break bones. I don't have to draw blood. I just have to strike her. It's not allowed, unless she happens to be my child and I'm cross. So that was very important that now corporal punishment is defined as a form of violence and by default corporal punishment in the home became outlawed because no parent can now go to court and say, yes, I did hit my child, but I was allowed to for this reason. So what does this mean for parents? Well, the fact is we do not want to criminalize parents. It is very, very seldom in children's best interests that their parents are put in jail. So that would be the last thing we want. It is not an infringement of parental rights. You can do whatever the hell you like in your own home, except hurt somebody else. And if that somebody else is your child, that doesn't mean it's okay. And it's not an infringement of your rights to religious freedom. There is, in fact, nowhere in the Bible that the words spare the rod and spoil the child appear. I'll talk more about that just now. There are lots of things about rods and chastisement, but not that particular phrase. And what it gives to parents is support for positive discipline and nurturing parenting. It opens the space for people to start thinking about how they parent and what the consequences of that kind of parenting are. Chinaz has mentioned a lot of the stuff I'm going to talk to you about as well because it's the only real research we have, the Optimist study. There's been other stuff before, but nothing as thorough and complete. 42% of children had experienced some form of violence perpetrated by a caregiver. Corporal punishment as discipline gone wrong contributes significantly to child homicide, according to the 2015 child homicide study which Shanaz actually was involved in running. And corporal punishment of children in the home is widely accepted, it's widely tolerated. So, God says we mustn't. Well, actually, there is no biblical mandate to beat children anywhere in the Bible. There is lots of stuff about rods and chastisement, but, and that references to a, a, a fact sheet that was developed by Sonke Gender Justice, which looked at some of these myths about corporal punishment and gave the facts. The words spare the rod and spoil the child were first used in a poem in the 16th century about a sexual relationship between a, an older woman and a boy. Um, that paper, that uh, fact sheet will give you the full quote. I like telling people who tell me that God says we mustn't hit our children, that the first time that that phrase was actually used was in a, in a probably pornographic 16th century poem. Cultural grounds, it's not in my culture. Well, seven countries in Africa prohibited corporal punishment before we did. We, we were the eighth. 
We are the 57th country in the world. But aside from that, it, it's not true that corporal punishment is culturally endemic to Africa. It seems to be culturally endemic to anywhere where colonizers went, actually. And it was brought to Africa certainly by slave traders, by missionaries, and by the colonizers. And there are many sayings in many African languages. One that always comes to mind easily is a Zulu saying, which I wish I could say in Zulu, but I can't, but basically says, you do not raise a happy house with a stick, or you do not build a happy house with a stick. And there's lots of those kind of, that kind of folk wisdom in, in terms of child rearing. There's also another fact sheet on that stuff, and as I said, seven countries have banned before we did, and we are the eighth African country to do that. It happened to me, and uh, it did me, me no harm. Well, firstly, how do you know it didn't do you any harm? How do you know how you would have turned out had it not happened to you? But secondly, I ask you to look around, and then tell me, tell me that you think we're turning out all right. When you look at our high levels of violence, when you look at the rate at which we rape, murder, and kill, there are serious grounds for knowing that we are not turning out all right. So the, the stats, living in society is violent as ours, 58 murders a day, three children murdered every day. Our child homicide, I've said twice the global average, but Shanaz's figures prove me wrong. It's more than double the global average. Um, six women are killed by their intimate partners a day, nearly 100 report, 140 reported rapes a day. This is an extraordinarily violent place to live. And we must understand that we teach children the wrong lessons when we hit them. We teach them that it's okay for bigger, stronger people to hurt smaller, weaker people with impunity, and that you have no say, no rights, no opinion, no nothing. So when we say don't hit children, do we mean don't, don't discipline them? No, of course we don't. We need to understand what the difference is. Punishment, both words come from Latin. Punishment means quite literally to chasten, to retaliate, to whip, to scourge, to hurt, to punish. Discipline means to teach, to instruct, to train. It, it's about imparting knowledge. That's why we have disciples, for example, or rather why, why, why Jesus had disciples. There is a host of negative consequences to corporal punishment. A 2012 paper that looked at two decades of research that was done by Elizabeth Gershoff and her colleagues at the Te University of Texas found that no study showed that uh, hitting children had good developmental outcomes. The best that some studies showed was that it didn't make much difference, but most studies showed that it does, makes an incredible difference. Most child physical abuse actually occurs in the context of punishment, and a professional consensus is emerging that we have to find ways of, doing, of supporting nonviolent parenting. So the ad adverse consequences and my slides are also available if anybody wants them. There's increases in aggression, delinquency, delinquency antisocial behavior in both childhood and adulthood. Shanaz's point about the last course of violence is incredibly important. It's not something that happens in phases. It's everywhere. There's an increased risk of abusing their own child or spouse or of being the victim of abuse in adulthood. It has ad adverse cognitive outcomes. We know that, the, the, as Shanaz said, the structure of the brain has actually changed in utero when the child is exposed to violence, or when the mother of the pregnant woman is exposed to violence, and that continues in those first thousand days which start at birth, I mean at conception and end at 24 months. 
it definitely has an effect also on intelligence. In, in a study that was done in West Africa a couple of years ago, there were two samples of schools, one where corporal punishment was allowed and one where it was not. On average, the IQs of the children in the school where there was no corporal punishment were five IQ points higher than the other schools. So there are lots of there is so much evidence that these things, physical outcomes, of course there's broken bones and bruising, but there's also death way too often. Um, and it's, it's because parents don't have support to parent differently, and that's what they know, and that's what they, how they were brought up, and it goes around and around and around. I'll never forget when the, the grandmother of the, the Dross rapist in Pretoria appeared sobbing on TV to tell us all how her son wasn't really a rapist and he made a mistake. Well, that's not the subject of this, but what came out of that was that he had the most hideous childhood. And my first thought was maybe we should be holding parents uh, liable, accountable for the horrible behavior of their adult children. I bet you dollars to donuts her childhood was just as bad. And that's the point. It goes round and round and round in circles. 45% of all child homicide is child abuse and neglect related. And that's a medical research council finding. The neurological outcomes we've talked about. Social outcomes, there's difficulty in relating, there's depression problems, there's lots of things that, of things that happen that can happen from the very early on in the child's life and then get worse and worse and worse as they get older. Aggression is reliably linked to violence experienced in childhood. And then the thing that um, uh, Shanaz was talking about, the genetic links between how children experience and process and, and what happens as a result of experiencing violence. But one important thing that we often forget about is that this costs a lot of money. And when we try to say as civil society organizations working around these issues to government, we need to put far more money into prevention and early intervention, they say, oh, well, that's very expensive. The fact of the matter is it's a hell of a lot cheaper, quite a significant lot cheaper. They're not doing it. And the, 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 a couple of studies that were done fairly recently, both came out in 2017. K, KPMG, sorry. <laughs> a conservatively estimated that gender-based violence costs South Africa between 284 and 424 billion rand a year, or between 9, <coughs> 0.9 and 1.3% of the GDP. And GBV is specifically defined in that study to include violence against children. The Save the Children study also came out in 2017. 238 billion was what it cost in South Africa in 2015 that because we did not prevent that abuse happening in the first instance. And the, the, the costs were about things like the, 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 over the lifetime, the, the, the disability, both emotional and in other ways, that children who've experienced violence as they grow up, that kind of haunts them for their whole lives. It cuts down their productivity, it cuts down their ability to sustain themselves and support a family. It's, there's reduced earnings, there's clear evidence that children who come from, from homes where there was violence and where they were beaten are, are, are much more, um, they, they, they have so many th things that make their lives difficult afterwards, they need much more support. That all costs. And what is not included in any of those costs, and this is very important, was none of the criminal, criminal justice system processes. So none of the investigation, none of the trial, none of that. Just from the social services side was what it was um, looked at. The Constitution says everyone has the right, has inherent dignity. These are the sections that the, con the decision was uh, used. Everyone has a right to freedom and security of person, and a child's best interests are of paramount importance in all things. 
And then there's also the Children's Act, in particular sections 144 and 145, which talk about support to parenting and make grand claims or suggest, say, it's not a claim, it's a say, Every provincial MEC for social development is supposed to annually do an audit of services available to children in their province. And they have to put in place, according to the law, where there are no services, they need to find somebody to do those things. Nobody's doing that, of course, but that's what the law says. Children are holders of rights in their own right. One of the most difficult aspects of this, these conversations is that people really do still think they own their children. And the fact is they don't. Nobody owns anybody else. That's called slavery. Children have just as much rights as everybody else, and in fact they have a few more, because they are vulnerable, they are small, they are developing, they are growing, they need greater protection. So it's not um, true that, that, you know, that they, they, they hold these rights in their own right. They're not simply your appendage. And it's not true that government has no right to interfere in the private sphere. Government is obliged by the Constitution to interfere in the private sphere. That's why we have domestic violence legislation. As I said earlier, you can do whatever the hell you like in your own home, but you cannot hurt anyone else. And as good evidence of that is the, the, the decision that was taken about the, the, the unconstitutionality of not allowing people to smoke dacha or grow dacha for their own personal use in their own homes. That's not hurting anybody, that you can do that, but you can't hurt anybody, that is not allowed. What's next? There's a national campaign being planned to try and change attitudes and behavior. There's a treasury, but several people in this room are, are part of that. We want active support to nonviolent and nurturing parenting, which emphasizes discipline rather than punishment. Scale up and roll out inter inter interventions with, with, which have evidence to, to back them, and there are a number of those, and it's not a new idea, and we feel that, well, I feel that issues around parenting and, and non-violent, being non-violent should be included in the uh, life, life orientation uh, curriculum in schools. So that's what's next. Thank you. At this point, I'd like to introduce to you uh, from the Center of Child Law in the University of Pretoria, Isabel Magaya. Over to you, ma'am. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Um, so we've heard about the violence that it's actually, corporal punishment, first of all, is conceptualized as violence against children. We've um, heard and seen the evidence, and also Carol has spoken to us about what the constitutional court judgment essentially um, means, what it actually means. So now I'm going to talk about what we need to do, what each of us in this room can do to contribute to the changes that we want to see. So one of the ways that I'm going to do that is I'm going to focus on uh, the development of the law in South Africa. I'm going to talk about um, the common law by the court, so Carol has already touched on that. So I'm not going to go into greater detail. And I'm also going to talk about the benefits of having a provision um, on corporal punishment in the Children's Third Amendment Bill. So um, in law, well, those, those of you that are very familiar with the law know that once um, the courts have developed the common law, it is essentially law. It's there. So why are we trying to double, is it padlock, or why are we stating the obvious? So I'm going to talk about the benefits and the needs of why we need to have a specific provision in, in the Children's Act. Oh yes, and the question of the what. So we do agree that we need to have something in the Children's Act, but what is that thing that we need to have in the Act? 
So as Carol touched upon, um, so firstly, there are two ways that we develop the law in South Africa. So we can either do it through the courts or we can do it through the legislature. So that's a whole parliamentary process where um, both houses of parliament look at legislation and then they agree on what they want the legislation to, 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 to say. So for corporal punishment, um, courts have already developed the common law. They've already changed the law. And um, that aligns with section two of the supremacy clause. So that's go basically going to what Carol spoke about, you know, the supremacy of the constitution, that the constitution is the supreme law in the land. And if the common law does not meet tenets of the constitution, then it must fall. So two ways that it must, uh, it must fall is, if it's inconsistent with the constitution, the court can and must, and so very often do, strike down the law. And where the common law does not adequately give effect to a right in the Bill of Rights, the courts are obliged, so they're, they're constitutionally mandated to develop the common law, which is what they did. And the impact of the constitution on the common law, I think, is pretty obvious from what we've said. And I'm not going to talk about the, the development of the common law defense, because um, Carol has already touched on that. And um, I've already mentioned that judges and the legislature can also change the law. So I think for purposes of our discussion today, the, the important thing is how the Constitution impacts private law relationships. Because I think when the Bill of Rights was de uh, designed, um, it was easier, it was, I think the intention was to enforce rights against the state. So your vertical application of the Bill of Rights and um, to some extent the horizontal application. But the horizontal application of the Bill of Rights, enforcing my rights against this next individual, a private individual, is something that we didn't think through. In as far as the parent um, and child um, relationship um, is concerned, because parents not only have a right to raise their children, they also have an obligation to discipline them. But now we're seeing children enforcing their individual rights against their parents. So that is quite problematic, and it's not an easy pill to, to, to swallow. So I think we need to talk about that. So um, in some democracies, South Africa included, people have a problem with being told what to do by the courts, by the state. You cannot tell me how to raise my child. You cannot tell me what to do in my house. But the courts, in as much as the courts um, are mandated to develop the common law, the courts are, are um, mandated to ensure that we, everybody meets their constitutional obligations. They do not take the fact that they have to tell people how to raise their children in the home, how to get into the private sphere. They don't take it lightly. It's not something that they enjoy doing, but they must do it because they're under a constitutional obligation. So in 2016, um, if you see in red there, um, Justice van der Hazen, how far does the Constitution and its interpretation and enforcement by courts reach into our private, private and social lives? Is there somewhere in our churches, temples, mosques, and synagogues, or for that matter, our kitchens and bedrooms, a constitution-free zone? And I think the abolition of corporal punishment essentially answers that question, to say there is no constitution-free zone. Right, so we're on the same page there. So um, the problem is that there's an exaggerated dichotomy, a conflict between parental rights and children's rights. The two are not mutually exclusive. You can have both of them, but I think the reason we have such a big problem is that we always view children's rights through our own interests as parents, as caregivers, as adults. And we're having difficulty in shifting that mindset to view the child as an individual rights holder. 
So what do we need to do? It's a problem. So I think for our purposes, the value of the constitutional court judgment is essentially it's strong arming us to face a reality that we have to deal with in South Africa, recognizing children's individual rights. So what do we need to do? The constitutional court judgment essentially says you cannot raise that defense anymore, so you cannot physically punish your children um, as a way to discipline them. So um, if we have a provision in the Third Amendment, we can clarify certain concerns that have come up since we got the constitutional court judgment in, in September 2019. So one of those, or some of those concerns are around the criminalization of parents, that you're now, um, if I smack my child, I'm going to be criminalized, I'm going to be arrested. The effect of this is that, you know, they're trying to separate or destroy families. That's not what we want. So if we have a provision in the Children's Act, we can clearly state that, first of all, the defense, the removal of the defense and the development of the common law is not to criminalize parents, but is to encourage positive discipline. The second thing is we need to also clarify safety nets that are available to parents in the Children's Act. How do we do that? The first one is that if you look in terms of Section 110, the first response is not a criminal justice response. So once a parent is reported, we're not going to rush to the police officer, um, I mean to the police station and report. A social worker has to do an assessment and um, they make a recommendation. So we need to clarify that in law and the sort of steps that now need to be to, to take place between that reporting and uh, the follow-up action. So also um, in the Children's Act, by having a provision in the Children's Act, we're essentially highlighting that the criminalization of parents is not in the best interest of children. So if it's a light smack and if you know, a parent can be diverted to prevention and early intervention, they can still stay at home, they can still be with their child, but if there's reasonable concern, if there's justification to believe that it's actually abuse, then the parent should be arrested because abuse is abuse is abuse. Like we've heard the evidence that most of the child homicides in South Africa are corporal punishment gone wrong. So we need to stop the buck early. So um, the other safety net that we have is a prosecutorial discretion. So if the matter gets reported to the NPA, the prosecutor can decide whether or not to go through with the prosecution. So one of the things that we want to push for the, um, and it's a suggestion for us to, to, to think, is to have directives to the NPA to say when a prosecutor comes with um, a case where a parent is accused of using corporal punishment or punitive violence, can we divert them to certain programs? But what those programs are and what that diversion looks like is, is, is a discussion that we need to have either in this, room, in this room or when we go back to our various workplaces. So, and the, other, the last thing is that um, the law does not concern itself with, with trivialities, the de minimis non curat legs. <laughs> so not all reported cases will be prosecuted. So I think, thank you. I think this needs to come out. If we have a provision talking to the issue of corporal punishment in, um, in the Children's Act, will be able to, to clarify these issues and also to make all the parents know what exactly happens should they use corporal punishment in the home. I don't know, can you see that? So we, we um, so in the sector there's, there are mixed views. There are people who are of the view that, there are some colleagues who are of the view that we need to have a strong, <laughs> a clear abolition, explicit ban 
that says that corporal punishment will be abolished in the home. Now, there are others who are of the view that we need to have, we already have the constitutional court judgment. So we don't need to have something that clearly states, states it that way because when it gets to parliament, parliamentarians are going to you know, fight over it and then remove the, the provision because this happened again previously in 2002. So what we're proposing is, or what I'm proposing and what I'm suggesting and uh, putting before you is to have a provision that talks about, if you look at 12.1a then, the highlighted sections. When disciplining the child, you must guide them while respecting, promoting, and protecting to the fullest extent possible the child's constitutional rights. Right? Section two, subsection two there, I removed the removal of the, corporal, uh, of the common law defense because we already have the Concord judgment. So how can we do that? Um, again, in legislation, so again, it's, it's, it's debatable whether or not we need to have an explicit provision like that to say the, uh, the, um, the common law is removed from our law. Um, but if we put it that way, there might be pushback in parliament with people not understanding exactly what that means. So I'd rather we have a softer approach where we look at you know, guiding, disciplining our children, and not talk so much about, about you know, the, the reasonable chastisement defense, because it's already in our law, it's already there. And so because we've removed that, we need to talk about what are we replacing that which we have removed. So we're replacing it with, with now uh, if you look at subsection three, pre referrals to prevention and early intervention programs in terms of section um, 144 of the Children's Act. Then we talk about um, what the mandate or what obligations the Department of um, Social Development has. Education and awareness raising programs. Um, programs promoting positive discipline. And then subsection five, when all, is, when all else fails, we need um, to refer to, there's a section, section 110 has got provisions on reporting um, child abuse. So the other thing that we also need to make very clear is the criminal justice system is the absolute last resort. So criminalizing our parents is the very last resort and we need to put that in the Children's Act. And um, so this provision, the strengths or one of the reasons why I like this provision is that it's not linked to any offense. So it essentially achieves what we want to make it clear to parents that using corporal punishment or using punitive violence is no longer acceptable. And if you violate that, what will happen to you as a parent? And what are the obligations of the department? And um, I'm going to leave you with um, Justice Albi Sex. Um, what, what one of the things that he said, it's a very, it's one of our favorite quotes at the, at the Center for Child Law, where he said that every child has his or her own dignity, and if a child is to be constitutionally imagined as an individual with distinct personality and not merely as a miniature adult waiting to reach full size. So I think that is very important. I think Carol mentioned it that, you know, we tend to look at children as if we own them, but they're their own beings with their own dignity. And I think we need to embrace that based on Justice Albi Sachs' um, quote above. The end. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Isabel. At this point, I'm going to ask Divya Naidu from Save the Children South Africa to give us 
more feedback on what can be done in order to deal with the quality of life of our children. Divya, over to you. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, we've heard all the gloom and doom of what's going on, but there is still hope. But before we get into that, let me just ask you a few questions, just two actually. And I want to look at whether it's true or false. It's a little quiz. Children usually tell somebody about their abuse. True or false? I hear some truths, true and I hear some false. False. Most children do not tell anybody. We've heard the stats. Only one in nine children are actually reporting when abuse occurs. And it's often because they've been silenced by threats or just fear or they just do not have the voice themselves to explain what exactly has happened to them. Question two. Abused children hate their parents and want to get away from them. True or false? False. There's consensus on this. Most children who have experienced abuse by their parents still have very strong attachments and love for them. And all of us that have worked in that sector know that, and you see that children do still care about their parents. They just want the violence to end. So what can we do for these children? So what is positive discipline? Now let's, let's start by just talking a little bit about the difference between corporal punishment and positive discipline. So we understand corporal punishment focuses on what a child has done wrong, while positive discipline assumes that children want to learn and just need to be guided in terms of what they should do. Corporal punishment is based on the principle that you have to make children suffer. They have to feel some kind of pain in order for them to learn. Whereas positive discipline is based on the principle that children learn through cooperation. And this is very critical when we think about how we guide children and help them um, as they grow up. And, and, and it, it, it's a key thing when parents talk about that children will not learn if they do not get punished. And yet it, is, it has been proven otherwise that children do actually learn when they do not feel physical pain. Research has shown that corporal punishment, and, and um, Carol spoke about that in the Gershoff study, there was actually only one um, positive outcome to corporal punishment, immediate compliance, very short-term immediate compliance. So think about a scenario. You tell the child, don't do that. You hit them, and they shut up for the moment. And then what happens two minutes later? They back. So, so why aren't we learning that it doesn't actually work. And so corporal punishment results in immediate compliance, but no self-discipline and repeated behavior. Whereas positive discipline, on the other hand, results in understanding self-discipline and a change in behavior. And isn't that what we want? We want children to behave in a way, especially when we're not present. Not just to feel that they need to be policed all the time, and we see that often in adult behavior. Um, when adults, just when there's a police around, you'll drive properly. And when there's no police there, then okay, let me go over that barrier line, let me do all those things. It's because of the lack of self-discipline. You don't just do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. 
And, and that's what self-discipline is about. And, and that's where it starts with children, when we teach them how to have internal mechanisms to do right and wrong. Corporal punishment establishes the link between love and violence, whereas positive discipline establishes the link between love and respect. Now, research was done in the Eastern Cape some years ago where young girls were saying that they believed that their boyfriend did not actually care about them if they didn't hit them. And those young girls obviously grew up in families where they've seen the father hitting the mother, they've got hit by them. And it's that loving smack we cared for. That's what love means. It means we show somebody by our possessiveness, by the violence we use, that that equals love. Whereas it actually focuses on teaching children to understand the link between love and respect. And respect is not something we demand. Respect is something we earn. Respect is something we earn by actually showing it to children. So positive discipline is not a behavior management method. So behavior management focuses on obedience, teaching children to be obedient and to follow everything we as adults are saying. Whereas positive discipline focuses on our understanding of children. You see, corporal punishment is not about how children behave and what they do. Children will be children. They can be such angels when they're sleeping, and as some people say, they can be monsters when they're awake. But we still love them anyway. They're still children, and they're learning, and they're growing. Corporal punishment is about us as adults and how we respond to children's behavior and how we teach them. And usually we don't understand why they're doing something. So when children want to just play and jump about and we think they're making too much noise, we think their behavior is bad. They have the right to play. It is in the UN Convention. We just don't understand that children are being children and they're playing, and therefore we use corporal punishment as the way. So positive discipline helps us understand that children have a need to play. And when we understand that, we don't see the behavior as being bad. We understand that and we can work and we change our own attitude towards how we respond to that behavior. Positive discipline, and this is the part that parents are often very concerned about. Positive discipline is not about punishment other than hitting and shouting. So for instance, it's not acceptable to say to the child, okay, go and stand in the corner. And if you look in the picture there, okay, writing. You know, The common things in schools is, is go and write, I will not, I will not do this here. Um, and there was a really nice story that I just have to share. It was a case where in court, this judge um, had, had somebody there who was speeding and she asked the person at the end of it, oh, what is your profession? And she said, I'm a teacher. And she said, okay, and the judge said, okay, this is wonderful. I've waited for years. Now, I want you to go and sit in the corner and write down 500 times, I will not speed. <laughs> you know, just as an aside, everybody's looking too serious in here. But it's not about, um, you know, other sorts of things without hitting or, or shouting at children. Corporal punishment is certainly not about letting children do whatever they want to do. It's critical for us to understand, and this is where parents' fear is. So are you saying that I should just leave them to do what they want to know? You still have rules. But work around how you develop the rules. Work with children to decide on what those rules should be. 
and what the consequences are when those rules get violated. And when children are part of processes of engaging in deciding on what's right and wrong in their lives, they're learning how to make decisions, but at the same time, they also feed their own those decisions. And they have better understanding as well for what needs to be done, how they be, will behave, and what they need to do as they go forward. <coughs> and, and this is the fear of most parents. What do I do? How do I raise my child without any rules? And the key thing is no, it's not about not having any rules. Corporal punishment, is positive discipline is not about quick fix solutions. Now if you think of the situation, you know a child does something wrong, you just go in and you hit them. Quick answer, you've sorted it out. They're silent for a few moments, they, they're quiet about it. But for how long, as I said, they go back, it's not the solution. Now, when a child does something wrong, to sit down and to have a conversation with them about what they've done and what the risks that should be and how that's going to affect them, that takes time. And that is the difficult part for parents, where people are struggling with, I am so rushed and now you want me to sit down and to talk to them about what they've done right and wrong. After the Concord judgment, there was a whole lot of WhatsApp messages going around and, and pictures and things like that about people take your child, leave them at the constitutional court, a child sitting with the floor with all the tiles broken and saying, now you know, should I just stay quiet and sit and talk to them? All kinds of, of, of crazy things. But it's how hard is it for us to just talk to our children? Isn't that the joy about being parents? And we're not saying that the conversations have to be in-depth. So your little six-month-old child goes in to stick the finger into the plug point, block that plug point, cover it, because you can't have a conversation with the child of that age about the dangers of electricity. But you can just cover it. But as they're older, you can engage children in discussions around what is right and wrong. And so what happens? So what happens in, the, in that process? Let's look at two scenarios. Parents, father hits mother. Both parents hit their child. The child goes to school. The child then, the teacher, hits the child. And what goes on in that child's mind? Hmm, they're bigger than me. So it's okay for somebody bigger to hit someone smaller. They don't like what I do. So it's okay when somebody bigger doesn't like what somebody does, and therefore you can hit them. And this child goes out onto the playground, and they see this little guy there. I don't like what he's doing. And he goes and gives him a kick. And what do we call them? Bullies. So where's this child learned this behavior from? From us adults. And that's the key thing that, that parents are not getting that we as adults seem to be missing the point, is that children are learning violence from our behavior. There's a lovely saying that goes, don't worry that children don't listen to what you tell them to do because they're busy watching what you're doing. Because children watch how we behave and we have to be those good role models that teach them and guide them, not by just telling, but by how we respond to a situation. So when we respond to a situation, a crisis, by using violence, that's the message they learn. But on the other hand, when we sit down and take the time 
to talk to children when they're young and from the time they're little about right and wrong. We're teaching them a couple of good lessons and we're actually practicing positive parenting without even realizing it. What we're teaching children is we're teaching children communication skills. Research has found that parents who raise children by using positive discipline, the word count of children increases more. And why? Because when you're doing them, how many times I told you, don't do this, shut up, shut up. What are they learning? Two words, shut up. But when you're having a conversation, they're learning new words. And so their word count increases in that process. They're learning negotiation skills because they're saying, but I want this. And you're listening to what they're saying and you're saying, but this is the risks. They're learning negotiation skills in that process. But they're also learning intrinsically how to make informed decisions about right and wrong. And that is the critical thing that we need to make sure. So as children grow up older, when they have difficult decisions to make, so for example, that young girl whose boyfriend is insisting, if you don't sleep with me, then our relationship is over. Who should that child turn to for guidance? Should she go to her teenage friend who's as confused and saying what, he's really cute, you don't want to let him go? Or should she go to an adult who'd be able to guide her to make that right decision? We as adults want children to come to us. But will she come to us as, as a parent if all we say is, how many times I've told you not to do this? Or I told you not. Children therefore won't turn to us. So, so positive discipline is not a once-off overnight event. It's a lifetime process. It's a journey between parent and child that continues and it evolves with the issues. But when we start it correctly and we start with children when they're young and engage them and talk to them about the things that matter, in the long term, they always turn to us. And then when we're not around, they look within and they're able to make those right choices because we've taught them through practice over practice over practice what is important and how to make those right decisions. And it's quite interesting. I love to use this quote by Madiba, and I actually saw it on the program as well, which reaffirmed it. There can be no keener revelation of a society's soul than the way in which it treats its children. And so what kind of society do we want to be seen as? What kind of soul do we want to be as a democracy? Do we want to be, continue to be seen as one of the most violent countries in the world? Or do we want to be seen as a country that really values our children? And the first, the first international treaty that was signed by South Africa when President Mandela became president and in 1995, was the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. Why? Because what was the buzzword then? Children first. It was because he placed children so high on the agenda that he gave 50% or something of his salary towards setting up the Nelson Mandela Children's Fund. Because children are that 
critical and that important. And so what is our investment? What do we want to invest? And we've heard from Shanaz earlier on about this intergenerational cycle and what it does for children. I just want to say, so, so what difference does positive parenting programming make? And I just want to share with you one case story. There was a young girl who, who grew up in a family who rejected her because her father had rejected her. And she lived with her mother and her mother's family. And she was treated very badly. And as a child, she hurt a lot all the time. And when she grew up, she had a child of her own, a little son. And she treated him very much the way she was raised, um, by, by you know, disregarding him, always hitting him and shouting at him and treating him very badly. And the child would often spend a lot of time out of, the, out of the home during the course of the day. And when he comes back late, she would hit him for being home late. And then along the way, she got invited to attend one of the Save the Children parenting programs. And as she went through this eight-week program with us, week by week, she started to realize for herself what she was doing to her child was exactly what had happened to her. And she remembered the hurt she felt as a mother and realized she was causing the same pain and suffering with her child. And so she started to practice the lessons she had learned in each session. And, and she saw a change in her own behavior first in what she did. And, and that's what parents did. She changed her own attitude and behavior towards her child. And her relationship with her child changed for the better. In fact, she even said to the facilitator, I enjoy being a mother, because she felt so good about being a mother as she went in there. The child's behavior changed. He started spending more time at home because he actually enjoyed being with his mother and spending time with her. So she realized then he's staying out was because of what she was doing. He, in fact, even started to bring his friends home to spend more time because they all were hearing all these wonderful things his mother is doing. And that's the key lesson for us, is let's love our children. Let them be, enjoy this time. They only have 18 years of being children. Let's treasure it. So as they grow up and they become older, we relive those moments of joy and excitement with them in our whole life again. And there's a quote up there by our founder of Save the Children, Eglantine Jeb, and I want to read one part of it. She said, where she said, you know, people often say that child suffering has happened uh, and it always will. It's impossible only if we make it so. It's impossible if we refuse to attempt it. And I'm calling on all of us to attempt to do something about it. Thank you. I'd like us to give a big hand for the four presenters that have shared with us. Please sign up for our newsletter. News of our events and our podcasts can be accessed via our website at cplo.org.za.